Welcome to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. I'm Patty Vest. And I'm Mark Wood. In these extraordinary times, we're coming to you from our various homes as we all shelter in place. This season on SageCast, we're talking to Pomona faculty and alumni about the personal, professional, and intellectual journeys that have brought them to where they are today. This episode was recorded in the studios of KSPC prior to the campus shutdown due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Today, we're delighted to talk to Robbie Goldman, class of 2015, a volcanologist. Welcome, Robbie. Thank you. Happy to be here. Um, so, Robbie, you're a recent Pomona grad, mm-hmm. uh, but you've done a lot since you left Claremont. Can mm-hmm. you kind of bring us up to speed on what you've been doing the last, last few years? Sure thing. Um, so right after uh, my graduation in May of 2015, I did a summer program uh, for three months at the Lunar and Planetary Science uh, Center in um, um, Houston, Texas. And um, this was part of a summer intern program where I and roughly a dozen other um, Earth and planetary scientists um, got together and did research on uh, various uh, lunar. Uh, So my particular project um, was looking at um, understanding the thermal history of the moon's crust um, over the past few billion years. And the technique that I and my mentor, Walter Kiefer, used for that um, was to look at um, the topography or the um, the mountain belts around these really large impact craters um, that are visible on the moon and um, understand looking at the topography and looking at the slight variations in gravity in the, the pull of gravity um, from these mountains um, tells us about the uh, structure, the density, the material that's underneath those mountains. And it tells us a little more about um, how hot the moon was back when it was molten a few, three, uh, few billions of years ago. So before you go on with with the things you've been doing, tell us what it's like to work with a little piece of the moon. Yeah. So um, I um, so my project was mostly um, looking at um, satellite data and uh, processing that data uh, with a very old uh, programming code that, um, at least at the time that I was there, a lot of uh, planetary scientists use. I did have the um, opportunity to um, go into um, the main uh, Johnson Space Center uh, laboratories where they do have the moon rocks, and this was part of the orientation that we did um, mm-hmm. as a class. And so um, I had a really cool experience of being able to put my hands in, you know, those uh, glass tanks with the big gloves and to just, you know, I don't remember if we actually had an opportunity to touch some of the moon rocks, but we got to see them in their cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was just really cool being at a, a site where these moon rocks that were collected in the 60s and early 70s are stored. So, um, but yeah, it, I mean, it's a really cool experience to be able to just learn more about the moon's history um, just because it's such um, an integral part. It has such a close relationship to the formation of our own planet. Yeah. So after Houston, where did, where next? Where so did you um, next? after Houston, um, I, did a Fulbright uh, in New Zealand for a year. So mm-hmm. that began late January of 2016. And I was there um, through the beginning of December of that year. And so um, my project in New Zealand was to look at um, these ancient uh, magma um, conduits or um, blades, these really thin blades of molten rock that formed nine to eight million years ago, so a long time ago. Now, today, they kind of look like, um, <coughs> excuse me, 
Um, today, um, these uh, blades of ancient magma look like uh, kind of like cobblestone walls of rock, uh, cobblestones that are made of volcanic rock. And the reason why I was interested in studying um, these blades of magma known as dikes is because these are the same things that in 2018 on Kilauea Volcano in Hawaii, these were the things that were erupting these huge fountains of lava um, that affected a lot of neighborhoods um, on the uh, southeastern part of the island. And so the research that I was doing was to learn more about how studying the remnants of these magma sheets um, tells us about how volcanoes around the world form and mm. how we can better predict where eruptions are likely to occur. And you just came from Hawaii. I did, it. yes. Can you tell us a little bit about sure thing. that you're you doing there? So um, I guess just to uh, catch us up on where I am right now, I um, started my PhD program at the University of Illinois in January of 2017, right after returning from New Zealand. Um, why I've been in Hawaii, why I was in Hawaii this past month is because of um, a few factors. So I do have family connections in Hawaii, in Oahu, because on my mom's side, I'm actually part Hawaiian. Um, so I've always had an interest in just being part um, of the culture, the geography, and the volcanology. And um, my specific project that I've been working on starting this past month is to learn more about the information that people received, uh, particularly locals, on the big island of the Hawaii, where the eruption of Kilauea volcano occurred back in 2018. And the reason why I became interested in this project, um, my background as a volcanologist is, is more in the geophysical, so looking at um, how forces within active and previously active volcanoes uh, guide where magma, this molten rock that causes eruptions, ends up. But um, back in the um, fall of 2018, um, a scientist named Wendy Stovall gave a talk at the um, Geologic Society of America fall meeting in Indianapolis. And I learned from that talk that um, social media, uh, such as Facebook and Twitter communications, played a huge role in informing people about the hazards that were going on during the 2018 eruption. And I just became really fascinated with the role that those communications play in uh, helping people feel safe, uh, stay informed. And um, so I ended up getting in touch with Wendy, and I'm actually going to be moving up to Portland, Oregon next week to begin a year-long project at the Cascades Volcano Observatory, where she works, to dive into those um, social media communications. And so when I was in Hawaii in January, I actually interviewed locals in various parts of the island that were impacted not just by lava flows in the southeastern part of, of the island, but also by volcanic gas in the southwestern part of the island and by earthquakes um, that were caused by the summit collapsing in this big crater um, due to the fact that magma that had been stored in this large um, pool or chamber, as we refer to it, was escaping to go down slope to erupt on the southeastern part of the island where the lava flows were. Um, and so that release of volume ended up like a piston lowering the rock that had been above it and just causing these daily, regular uh, 24 to 36 hour earthquake events um, as large as magnitude fives each day. So, you know, here we are in Southern California and we're always concerned about, you know, when is the big one going to hit? Mm -hmm. um, 
But these were people on the island, especially on the Volcano Summit, that were going through sizable earthquakes pretty much every day for a three-month period. Um, a year or so ago, I interviewed uh, Jim Kalihikawa, mm-hmm. uh, yep. who's another Pomona alum who uh, is with the Hawaii uh, Volcano Observatory. That's right. Um, who was involved in the communications mm-hmm. during that that those uh, eruptions and. He expressed a lot of frustration with the difficulty of managing the the sort of instantaneous communication today, mm-hmm. um, and the the sometimes the disconnect between the people who were doing that and the the people who who were actually getting the information about what was happening and. So I'm just curious, uh, what what is your thinking about that? I, I, I mean, that's that seems to be uh, a really important. I mean, as you said, the, the that's an important way of communicating today, but it's mm-hmm. it's also difficult to make sure that that you're getting accurate information out. Right. So that's like, you actually re- get to a really important point. Um, so something that I learned very early on when I started talking to people to locals about this event is that. There are so many layers to responding to an eruption, not just in informing people, but in evacuating people, making sure that people have the necessary resources, making sure that people feel okay. Um, A lot of people, um, particularly in Leilani Estates, where most of the fissures were, um, (coughs) most of the people in the Leilani Estates area, they had very little notice just because of how quickly um, the magma reached uh, their neighborhood. Um, They were not able to have a whole lot of time to move their possessions, to take care of their animals, uh, to figure out where to go. And um, so there was a lot of anxiety. It was a very high stress situation. You know, it was a local crisis. And so in Hawaii, there are lots of local communities who have really tight knit connections. And there are a lot of people who live on the big island who live there because they want to be off the grid to a certain extent. And so when you have a big um, has a natural hazard like a volcanic eruption, how people get information is largely dependent on who they know and what their their sort of web of people are. And uh, I think what uh, Jim K was referring to, <coughs> I think what uh, Jim K was referring to is the fact that um, as a volcano um, observatory scientist. Um, there are times when it was difficult to communicate information um, that was, I guess, the most direct, most scientifically um, robust source of data on what was going on with this eruption. And having um, third-party members of these local communities perhaps communicate those forms of information in their own ways. And... As a scientist, that can be really frustrating because um, in our field, in academia in general, we care a lot about um, being careful with what we say, making sure our information is accurate, making sure that it's vetted by our peers. But the the thing about a, a real-time crisis like a volcanic eruption is you don't really have time to have um, information distilled in as orderly a fashion. and. Um, I learned very quickly that in the Leilani Estates area, a lot of people uh, referred to a group called Hawaii Tracker, and which is made up of uh, locals who 
either have a scientific background or um, have a technological background where they're able to quickly get out information through social media, uh, particularly Facebook and through YouTube videos uh, to show people where lava flows are occurring, where new fissures and ground cracks are forming, and just telling, helping people feel more comfortable with the information that is largely available through the Volcano Observatory, but in a way that's just more tangible for a lot of folks. Mm-hmm. And um, now the good news uh, from the observatory is that um, for years and years, um, the scientists of the observatory have put in um, a significant effort to connect with these various communities that live on the volcano. And as a result, the scientists are held in very high regard. Um, I think something that both the scientists at HVO and locals who have been in charge of these communication efforts, like the Hawaii Tracker Group that I mentioned, um, I think one um, key challenge and one that, at least during my time in Hawaii last month, was starting to be addressed is, you know, how do you have these two groups of communicators, the scientists and, you know, everyday people, so to speak, um, how do you make sure that their messages are coordinated and that their understanding of these common hazards from the volcano um, connect in such a way that information can be communicated as effectively as possible? And so um, I definitely think this is going to be, not just in volcano science, but in any uh, natural hazard uh, research, as we become a more digitally connected society, as the role of social media continues to grow in our day-to-day communications, um, it's going to be really important to incorporate those more informal forms of communication along with the more official channels. Mm-hmm. I want to take you back a little bit on the way back machine and okay. uh, take you back to your Pomona years. Gladly. Did you, um, you mentioned that you have some connections to Hawaii and the geography, mm-hmm. and um, is, did that drive your, your interest for geology? Did you always know that? that was something that you wanted to pursue as a career? Yeah, so I I would say that my connection to Hawaii is definitely part of what got me interested in volcanology, but I'd say that I also just have an innate interest in things that, uh, you know, are generally, you know, quote-unquote cool. (laughs) Um, So, you know, volcanoes are among the most intriguing um, phenomena on our planet. And, um, in fact, one of the volcano geologists who uh, gave a talk um, in Hawaii last month um, she had done a science fair project with a baking soda volcano. So, you know, <laughs> kind of a classic story, but at the same time, it just shows, you know, the power mm-hmm. of volcanoes to captivate. And I actually have a funny story. My very first geology class, which I took in high school, I grew up in uh, Southern California. Um, I went to Harvard Westlake, and there was a course I was offered. Um, and I was looking at the uh, science um, extracurricular um, we got like these handouts in one of my science classes in middle school, and they all had these uh, little pieces of clip art, you know, like a Erdmeyer flask, um, rocks. But for this particular geology class that I did, it was an erupting volcano, and you know, in a way, I was kind of sold just by seeing that volcano. Um, so it really w- was largely an innate interest, and I think growing up in Southern California, I've really been lucky to be in a place that is geologically active, where you can go to the Mojave Desert or Death Valley, or even. Uh, just go along uh, Santa Monica, the Pacific Palisades, and just learn so much about um, our Earth's uh, history. And so, and that was a big reason why I actually went to Pomona, is because mm-hmm. being situated here um, in Southern California is a great way to continue learning, to pursuing that interest um, in geologic phenomena. 
Um, before I before we go on, I just want to make a little note for our listeners that Robbie's wearing a shirt um, covered mm-hmm. with <laughs> erupting volcanoes <laughs> in the middle of, of what looks like deep blue ocean. <laughs> yeah, that's a fair interpretation. There's also a tan version of this shirt, but but the ocean. Yeah. Is a, this one. I like this um, one. So how did your passion evolve here at Pomona, your passion for, for, uh, for things geological? Um, so I guess I'll say that when I came to Pomona, I had a bunch of interests, and that was a, another big draw of going to Pomona is that it's a liberal arts college. Um, I had interests in Latin, uh, Chinese, um, astrophysics. I actually had originally uh, considered pursuing um, a double major in physics and geology. Um, for geology specifically, um, I got interested in the department. I mean, I'd always had an interest in the department. I remember um, meeting with, um, I might have met with my um, undergraduate advisor and um, mentor postgraduate, um, Eric Grofis, um, who actually put me in touch with the two of you for this interview today. Um, <laughs> Thank you, Eric. Yes. <laughs> um, so I remember meeting with Eric, um, but I really got to know Eric more uh, starting at the end of, I think, either my sophomore year or beginning of my junior year. Um, I took my first class with uh, Bob Gaines, uh, Earth History. Wonderful class. Bob is um, a fantastic um, instructor and explainer. And um, I got really interested in just I took his course because the title Earth History, that, that gets to the crux of my whole interest mm-hmm. in understanding mm-hmm. our planet. And so um, I think it was really just um, a natural um, opportunity or pathway from um, that class to just continue pursuing my interest in earth science. And um, yeah, in terms of volcanoes, um, I um, Eric became my undergraduate um, advisor um, towards the end of my sophomore year, and I learned very quickly about his interest in planetary geology and in volcanism, and um, I ended up doing a project uh, with him and um, a uh, classmate of mine who's also at the University of Illinois, uh, Jack Albright, who graduated the year after me. Um, I did a project with him, the two of them, on um, modeling or uh, simulating the forces acting within um, planetary volcanoes, and to understand um, how these big summit collapse craters known as calderas form, the same one that uh, caused those, all those earthquakes at the summit of Hawaii um, in 2018. And so that research uh, lended itself to me do, focusing on a few specific volcanoes, uh, one in Alaska, one uh, Venus um, for my um, senior thesis. And uh, from there, uh, pursuing um, the project that I did in New Zealand, looking at the extinct uh, Akaroa volcano um, on the South Island of New Zealand and learning more about how these dikes or magma sheets formed uh, using the same set of modeling tools that I'd used back here at Pomona. Um, So I think things really just naturally fell into place. Um, One other thing I'll say is that the culture of the geology department was another big um, draw for me because um, there are these weekly um, snack gatherings called Liquidus, weekly colloquia, just a lot of opportunities to bond with people. Um, and certainly field trips are another great opportunity when you're you know, roughing it <laughs> with your peers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so I think all those factors are what led me to the path that um, I've embarked on. You mentioned the 
research projects that you were involved with with Eric and mm -hmm. now in the midst of your um, doctoral journey. Um, mm -hmm. What do you think it's so important for undergraduate students to do research, especially if they have some interest in pursuing PhD mm -hmm. programs or research later on? So um, the opportunity to pursue research as an undergrad, as a scientist, it just opens up a lot of doorways um, because of the fact that the work of, the sci of a scientist is to learn new things and to make connections with other professionals. And so I was lucky to do research projects every summer during my time at Pomona. Um, my first project was with uh, Dr. Alma Zook, uh, looking mm -hmm. at um, blazars, um, these really active uh, galaxies um, located um, billions of light years away. And um, even though I didn't end up going into astrophysics, it was a really cool opportunity to you know, to get into sort of the rhythm of what is a summer research project like? What is it like working with um, a professor outside of the classroom? What is it like working with other students outside of a class with grades? And um, what is it like going to a research conference to present those results? And so that experience set me up for um, my next research experience in um, New York City at the American Museum of Natural History where I looked at uh, meteorite samples. and. Then I ended up working on the project I mentioned uh, with Eric, looking at volcanoes. And then I was at the Lunar Planetary Science Institute um, in um, Houston. And so the reason why I list off those various opportunities, it's not so much the specific opportunities, which were all fascinating in their own right, but it's the fact that I had the opportunity to become part of the scientific community and to um, just have that experience of doing research. and. I know uh, fr just from the things I've done, my Fulbright, the National Science Foundation uh, Graduate Research Fellowship I have that's allowed me to go to Hawaii and it's allowing me to go to Portland. Um, those are doorways that would not have been open to me or would have been a lot more difficult for me to open had I not had those early research opportunities because um, really your um, standing as a scientist is dependent on how much experience you have doing research. And the more of that you can get early on, the better off you are for having more of those experiences um, in the future. You mentioned your Fulbright um, in New Zealand. Can you tell us a little bit more about that experience? Mm -hmm. um, leaving, leaving the US and going halfway around the globe and uh, being really on your own as a researcher right. for the first time? Yeah. So the really interesting thing about my year in New Zealand I mean, there were so many new things because for me personally, it was the first time, you know, being out in the world, not being at Pomona College. Mm -hmm. um, now, what made that experience a little bit easier for me um, was that New Zealand is an English-speaking country, so I didn't have to worry about um, honing my language skills. <coughs> um, but that said, and, and the thing is, New Zealand is such an international place. Um, I think culturally, especially being in a city, um, I was in the city of Christchurch, um, which is the largest city on the South Island of New Zealand and the third largest in the country, um, is that I really didn't feel like there's a whole lot of culture shock. And um, I lived in a shared house with uh, between three and nine other um, graduate students. Um, most of these students were actually from other parts of the world. Um, one or two Americans, um, but people from Europe, um, 
people teaching in uh, Taiwan um, and one uh, Kiwi or New Zealander. And so for me, it was really more about just the, the being in New Zealand. My Fulbright experience was really more about just connecting both with other scientists and other people. Um, I'd say my main challenge was just figuring out how to structure my research program because um, one thing I will say is that the culture in New Zealand academically, it tends to be more laid back. And this was something that the Fulbright Committee during our orientation had actually warned a lot of us American students about. Um, but it was certainly, it, there was a steep learning curve for me in figuring out how to prioritize my own research goals, my own research steps. Um, so, but I would say, say that that process has allowed me to become more of an independent researcher and to structure the kinds of projects I'm doing right now with regards to Hawaii, for example. Um, one interesting um, set of experiences I had in New Zealand that as someone with Hawaiian ancestry I was hoping to have is just learning a little bit more about um, the indigenous uh, Maori um, population and communities. Uh, the Maori are actually closely related to Native Hawaiians. Um, they're descended from uh, some Native Hawaiian tribes um, by about a few uh, hundred years. Um, and I was really interested in learning about how um, members of these Maori communities and families, how they fit into uh, New Zealand society. Um, and um, the two best, the two um, ex direct experiences I had with that were during the Fulbright orientation um, where um, we spent a night in a Maori marae or a meeting house uh, to hear about uh, various uh, tribal uh, stories and oral traditions and to learn about some of the, the tensions that exist between um, Maori communities and the main New Zealand government just because of the colonial nature of how the nation formed. Um, the other experience I had um, was actually uh, helping one of my advisors at the University of Canterbury, Sam Hampton, with a geopark, a UNESCO geopark initiative, which is essentially to take a place of ecological, geological, and cultural significance. Um, in this case, the Banks Peninsula, which is this large region that includes the Akaroa volcano that I was studying. Um, and to make it a sustainable community-run, uh, for lack of a better word, tourist attraction. And one very important component of establishing a geopark is to have the consent of the communities involved. And when it comes to Maori communities, um, there are a lot of uh, hierarchies and familial connections that need to be taken into account. And also, um, what I think is most interesting is just the Maori and more broadly indigenous worldviews about um, creation and about um, natural landscapes and how as scientists, and in my case as a geologist, we have a prescribed way of understanding how um, certain landscapes form, such as this volcanic region known as the Banks Peninsula. Um, the Maori, they have stories that involve deities and, and um, uh, chiefs and, and uh, warriors and um, other um, members of the community that really play a significant role in their understanding of um, how these landscapes were shaped. And one really um, interesting um, overlap between these two ways of thinking, particularly in volcanology, is learning about past eruptions that aren't as obvious from the literature, from, the ge from geologic fieldwork, and 
this is something that's been done both in New Zealand and Hawaii, looking at, and actually, <laughs> now that I think about it, um, we know about the fact that there's actually a significant earthquake risk in the Pacific Northwest, where I'm conveniently moving, <laughs> <laughs> due to the fact that there are um, Native American um, oral traditions about a very large uh, tsunami event that happened in the year 1700. And this was, I think, a few years before Lewis and Clark's expedition made it to that coast. Um, this oral tradition was compared with um, Japanese records of a tsunami that occurred around that time hmm. and with uh, follow-up geologic work looking at soil samples and looked to figure out the elevation of the seawater relative to the landscape. And all those things together give us our understanding that we've only had for the last three and a half decades about the, the seismic potential of the Pacific Northwest. So by being in New Zealand, I got a deeper understanding of how different sources of information are important for learning more about the world we live in. Your, your research um, tackles some, could be complicated sometimes, um, concepts or mm -hmm. um, <coughs> themes. Um, but you're, you're very keen on uh, sharing your research with the public. Mm -hmm. um, how do you do so without misrepresenting, with oversimplifying, um, but also making sure that it's um, sensitive to the local, you're very keen on the local communities where you're researching, whether it's abroad or, or, or here in the U.S. How do, you, how do you manage those, to navigate those? Right. So it's definitely not a simple um, issue, only because every group of people you talk to their experiences are a little bit different. Their interests, their needs, their concerns are a little bit different. Um, so I think it's, in, in my experience, and I guess my philosophy is that it's about connecting with people and tailoring your message in a way that is relatable. And in terms of avoiding fears of oversimplifying, um, I actually have a friend um, at the University of Illinois um, who really strongly dislikes the phrase dumbing down because of the negative connotation around it. And um, I actually went to a uh, communicating geoscience and geohazards workshop uh, in Portland with some of the same people that I'll be working with um, starting next month. And one thing I got out of that workshop experience uh, was the fact that everybody's an expert in something. Everyone has their own perspectives and, and experiences that shape how they think. And it's important as a scientist when we're talking about concepts that we know and trying to distill that for members of the public who have not had the years of uh, coursework and research experience that we do in our particular fields, it's important to, I guess, get at the core of why we do the work we do and how to make it relatable. So um, when it comes to uh, hazards, for example, um, using analogies like the fact that um, the ash cover from uh, the Mount St. Helens eruption in 1980 produced a certain amount, um, a certain thickness of material, um, or how even just using antidotes. And um, there's this funny um, phrase that uh, scientists have thrown around um, that the plural of um, anecdote is not data, meaning that we tend to think <laughs> of the world um, in terms of 
objectivity and not getting mired in personal details. But when it comes to um, communicating information to people, personal stories are how people relate to each other and relate to other experiences, other people's experiences. And so um, when talking about you know, how a volcano forms, I had mentioned this concept of a magma chamber beneath the summit of Kilauea Volcano. I, I referred to it, I think, as a pool of material. And I would imagine that at a scientific conference, I may get a little bit of heat from that just because the concept of a magma chamber is one that's, uh, pardon my um, uh, pun, but uh, hotly debated. And um, <laughs> the reason for that is because in reality, magma chambers are probably these really complex webs of um, blade-like or finger-like um, sheets of magma that are kind of just uh, intersecting and um, in aggregate creating something that we'd like to simplify as a magma chamber, but that um, in reality is probably more complex. But if, in my mind, if you focus too much on having the most complicated, accurate picture of things, you begin to lose the sort of broader understanding of why we study um, these complicated systems to begin with. And I remember um, Eric Grofies telling me that, um, or just teaching in his classes, that you could go out, if you had unlimited resources to study uh, Mount Baldy, to learn every single inch, to study every single inch, every single... Um, foot or meter into that um, mountain, you would still have an incomplete picture. Um, as scientists, the best that we can do is to have models that are a simplified understanding of the world around us, but at the same time, do the best job in explaining the observations that we make. And in the area of uh, volcano monitoring, um, the most common ways of understanding if a volcano is going to erupt and where it's going to erupt are by um, having GPS stations on the ground that tell us where the ground is moving up, where it's moving down, where magma might be shifting under that surface. Um, we have satellite observations that give us similar pieces of information but with a better spatial resolution, um, a better ability to map out the larger geographic distribution. Um, we have gas emissions, looking at the chemistry of the gases that come out of active volcanoes um, and, you know, we, we have all these pieces of information and, um, I know there's this like parable about, um, these blind people trying to uh, figure out what an elephant is. And one person's touching the tusk of the elephant, the other person's touching like the leg or the tail. And you've got these different pieces of this larger creature. And it's when you bring those pieces together, even if you don't have a full understanding of what that creature is, you can have an idea of what it is. And that's how you learn more about that organism. And so... Getting back to the point of communicating science to others and the idea of simplifying, I think it's not so much a concern of whether you're oversimplifying, it's whether or not you're getting at the core of the information that you're trying to communicate, whether it's about uh, how volcanoes work and the hazards that they pose to our society, um, or about climate change and why we're concerned about it, why we have abundant evidence that it's occurring and that it's anthropogenic and what we can do to mitigate it. Um, and a lot of that just has to involve involves meeting people where they are and trying to bring them into the conversation instead of just having them be, you know, some people that you lecture to. Uh, that sort of brings us uh, 
naturally to sort of the political side of science because some of the people you're you know trying to explain science to in as non-scientists are the are elected officials right. um who really need to understand the science mm-hmm. um uh, you've done a lot of political work in mm-hmm. in addition to to your research can you talk to us about that yeah <coughs> so um, during my, uh, the course of my PhD program at Illinois, I've had uh, several really neat opportunities to actually go to Capitol Hill and take part in uh, geoscience congressional visits days and related events. Um, my interest in um, meeting with elected officials, um, especially on our nation's capital, was to just, I guess, feel like I could, as a scientist, as someone who on a daily basis, understands the importance of the work that we do. Um, find a way to communicate that importance to the people who make uh, decisions on funding and on um, policies that are informed by science and that allow science to be conducted. And um, I think that something I learned uh, from, one big thing I learned from these experiences is in order to communicate with policymakers, um, it's not a matter of handing them a piece of paper and telling them, I want you to do this because I think this is important. That's certainly a part of the process, but it's more about the relationship. And I, I had talked about meeting people where they are. Well, even with your elected officials, they're people too. And the best way to communicate your concerns or my concerns as a scientist is to actually get to know these elected officials and largely through members of their staff um, about the importance of the work I do and how it relates, how give a story about how it's important in my own life and how it affects other people's lives and um, may affect the elected officials' lives or their constituents' lives. And in a way that isn't antagonistic or, you know, political or partisan, but in a way that, um, you know, is human. And um, I also learned um, that the process of making meaningful changes um, on the political level can be challenging. It's certainly a messy process, and there are a lot of different uh, personalities in Congress and a lot of different um, populations that are being represented. Um, I um, had opportunities to talk with um, congressional science fellows who are uh, postdoctoral or post-PhD scientists who have spent a year as a member of an elected official's staff. Mm-hmm. Um, I've talked to um, various um, fellows in this capacity, and um, what I heard from at least one of these fellows is that you know you can go in and be really enthusiastic about making an important impact um, in the country and the world, but that um, it's tempting to get discouraged at times just because of the convoluted nature of the government making the legislative process and, and governing. But um, if you are able to build relationships with other people, um, with staffers, with other policymakers, um, with members of the public who vote um, for their representatives, um, I found that that's the probably the best way, if not the easiest way still the best way to um, get across the original message and point of just 
making sure that um, our nation's policies are take into consideration the um, carefully obtained um, knowledge that we as scientists um, can provide. Robbie, you have obviously interest in political work advocating for scientific funding and, and research, or funding for research. Um, but you also had a political moment last October. Um, you were um, part of a town hall with one of the current Democratic mm -hmm. uh, presidential uh, candidates. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that experience? How, sure how thing. that was? Yeah. Um, so this was the um, CNN um, LGBTQ town hall. Um, I identify as gay, um, but um, I personally have had to wrestle with how that identity fits into my broader life, both as a scientist and just as an adult. And um, I found out about <coughs> I uh, found out about this town hall uh, through a, a colleague that I met at a science communication uh, workshop this summer of all things, um, who put me in touch with a listserv um, for LGBT events um, for UCLA's campus. And I found out about um, this opportunity to submit questions for the presidential, the Democratic presidential candidates. And I knew right away that I wanted to um, focus my questions you know, towards Pete Buttigieg, the first openly gay uh, candidate uh, of either major party for U.S. president. And I think one big reason why I was motivated to do that is because um, I personally can relate to certain parts of uh, Pete's, um, I guess, both um, academic experiences and also just his um, personality and his own struggles with coming out. And, um, you know, Pete's someone who's had, you know, very privileged, you know, academic upbringing. He was a, he attended Harvard. Uh, he did a Rhodes Scholarship. Um, but he, and he cares a lot about um, being involved uh, in policy. Um, that's why he became mayor of South Bend. Um, but in terms of coming to terms with his sexual orientation, um, at least from my, um, what I've read into his story and his, his own um, autobiography, um, it was one where he didn't feel like he had an opportunity to come out in a way that worked for him until he was in his mid-30s. Um, and for me, um, something that I've noticed is that, you know, on the note of connections and people having their own individual lived experiences, um, something that I really wrestled with um, coming to terms with my own uh, sexual orientation was where I fit into the larger LGBT community. And this is a really diverse community. There, there are certainly <coughs> the more, um, I guess, popularly um, publicized parts of it, like bar culture or um, pride parades and things like that. And um, I certainly am appreciative of those aspects of queer culture and queer history. But I, I personally have always felt like I was a little out of place in those particular venues. And um, just seeing um, a candidate who sometimes ha or has had to wrestle with a lot of challenges from various um, queer media outlets about either not being gay enough or not representing uh, members of the LGBT community significantly, I um, became really interested in just kind of learning more about how he's tackled those issues. And so the question that I submitted for the town hall and ended up having the opportunity to ask in October was one about, you know, how do you represent, as just one person, as one gay man, 
how do you represent um, an entire spectrum of people that's as diverse, as I said in my question, um, as our country, um, just by being human? Um, you know, how do you address those various needs as a presidential candidate and as a member of that community, even with your own specific personality and experiences? And um, I think having that experience and hearing Pete's answer, which I think did a good job of just addressing the various concerns of the LGBT community, um, I think just that whole experience was really helpful in I guess showing me that there are a lot of ways of just being an individual and also being part of a community. And um, the most important thing is to just be yourself and to communicate that clearly with other people and to allow other people to communicate um, openly in that manner. Um, on that note, we're going to wrap this up. Um, our thanks to Pomona alumnus Robbie Goldman, uh, geology doctoral student at the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Thanks, Robbie. Thank this you very is, much. This was fun. Thank you, Robbie. That was great. Thank you. And to all who've stuck with us this far, thanks for listening to SageCast, the podcast of Pomona College. Until next time. <laughs>